We're excited and honored to have a very special guest on this week's podcast, Richard Hudson, the co-founder of the London and Brussels-based Science Business Publishing Limited. He's the co-author of The Misbehavior of Markets, A Fractal View on Risk, Ruin, and Reward, which he wrote with the famed Yale and IBM mathematician Mendelbrot. Our discussion, frankly, should be required listening for any investor, and it was recorded in January of 2020, immediately preceding the market crash that occurred just weeks later. So I hope you enjoy this week's discussion and interview with Richard Hudson. You're listening to the Option Alpha podcast from OptionAlpha.com, where we show you how to make smarter trades, learn how the stock market really works, and generate consistent monthly income. Now, your host and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, Kirk Duplessis. Hey, everyone. This is Kirk here again from OptionAlpha.com, working every single week to make this the most popular investing podcast offered online because it's based on one thing and one thing only, and that's helping you guys consistently play smarter, more profitable trades. So again, thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. I promise you are going to love the interview that we have coming up with Richard Hudson, the co-author of The Misbehaviors of Markets. And two things I want to say before we actually jump into this. The first thing is, as I always say with most of the guests that we kind of bring on here, we're very selective on the guests that we choose to bring on the podcast for you guys. And we do that on purpose because this podcast is not an interview show, but we do like to bring on what I think are exceptional guests. And I'm very selective of who I choose to share my time with and who I choose to introduce you to. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy today's conversation and learn a lot from the discussion with Richard Hudson. The second thing is books. I get a lot of requests all the time about the books that I recommend. And many people know that I generally don't recommend any books. I think there's a lot of books out there about trading, a lot of books out there about options trading and markets, but I generally don't recommend a lot of books, if any books. This is one of the books that I highly recommend and I stand 100% behind. To me, it should be required reading for any investor, not just any options trader, any investor should read this book. So if you haven't picked up your copy, head on over to the show notes page at optionalpha.com slash show 173. Again, that's just number 173. We'll have all the links and resources that you need to get your hands on a copy of this book, information about Richard and his company, Science Business Publishing, and anything else that we have from the show notes is going to be over there on optionalpha.com. Now, as just one final reminder, this show was actually recorded January 31st of 2020. I wish now in hindsight that we had gotten this show out very, very quickly, but we just had it slotted for show 173. And so we had to get other shows out and we were going through the reproduction of the podcast and kind of the polishing of the new way that the show is formatted. But it's important to understand that this conversation actually occurred at the end of January in 2020. And you can hear as we were talking about in the interview where the markets were at the time and how volatility was very low and how market valuations were really high. And it was really immediately preceding the market crash that occurred, as we know, just weeks later from there. Now, I don't think at the time, obviously, either of us knew when or how severe or how bad it would be, but it's really interesting to hear what was really kind of alluded to, this idea that things will continue to be more volatile, that they will have volatility clustering, that we will see large moves outside of the normal expectation or the normal models, and that actually happened. And that's really, really fascinating. So last year in 2019, I went on this journey and personal mission to understand more about volatility. 
about hedging, about risk management. That's why we did so much testing around VIX and volatility products and earnings trades and all these other things as a company. And this was one of those things that I started to really dig into was the pricing around option models. And I think that this book was really a great resource for me last year in kind of reassessing how I look at risk and portfolios and option pricing. And so I really hope that you will enjoy this interview with Richard. And again, stick around all the way to the end because after the interview is done, I'm going to wrap up some additional notes and comments that we just didn't have time to cover. So Richard's time was very valuable and I wanted to respect that. And there's some other things that I wanted to cover and some topics that I wanted to dig deeper into, but we just didn't have time. So again, stick around to the end and I hope you guys really enjoy it. Before we bring on Richard, just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a background on who he is. Richard has been the leading science and technology journalist in Europe for more than 35 years. In 2004, he co-founded the London and Brussels-based Science Business Publishing, which is a media and communications company focused on research and innovation in Europe. Now, he's currently the editor-in-chief and the vice chair of the board of directors, but previously, he worked at the Wall Street Journal for more than 25 years in the U.S. and Europe as a reporter for technology and editor, and then from 1997 to 2003, was the managing editor of the European edition. Now, he began his career at the Boston Globe, and as you guys know, already wrote the best-selling book, which is published now in 13 languages with the famous Yale and IBM mathematician Mendelbrot, which is The Misbehaviors of Markets. This really was the big breakthrough book for markets, for central policymakers, for financial policymakers, and it won the best business book of the year in 2004 at the Frankfurt Book Fair, actually kind of preceding and talking about what would happen in 2008 and now obviously what has already happened in 2020. Now, the book was actually read and mentioned again and again in conversation actually by a lot of central bankers and policymakers in Europe, including Angela Merkel. And he is a graduate of Harvard Business College, former Knight Fellow at MIT, and now currently lives in Brussels. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Richard Hudson. All right. So we have Richard Hudson on. Thank you so much for being here today, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. And like I had said in the intro, you are right now based in Belgium. And so we're doing this interview. It's early in the morning here, stateside for me in the US, but in Belgium, it's a little bit later in the afternoon. But again, thank you so much for coming on. And I think the first place that we can start, and it might give our listeners a little bit more context as we start to dive deeper, but I believe the first place that we could start is maybe giving the listeners or walking through the general themes or arguments or points of the book or any subsequent work that you did thereafter, and then we can take it from there. Sure. No problem. The thesis of the book is really simple. It's that the reason people lose money in markets is that they underestimate the risk, specifically that the mathematical and financial models that are used most commonly by banks and investment firms around the world are based on faulty assumptions. Their assumptions underestimate the potential of major market moves, either crashes or booms. And that means that all of their forecasts, all of their tools, the way they price options, the way they assess, the way a multinational assesses financial risk, it's all flawed. Now you can say, all right, you know, this is ridiculous. But in fact, there are a growing number of economists and mathematicians who agree. It's as if 
you had 20 different models of cars from Wall Street to London to Frankfurt to Tokyo to Paris, fancy cars, Porsches, Ferraris, whatever. And when you open the hood, however, you find they've all got the same engine inside. And it's a lawnmower engine. You know? It's just not right. So this is the fundamental thing. Now, this thesis is based on the work of my co-author, Benoit Mandelbrot, a very famous mathematician who invented a branch of mathematics called fractal geometry. We don't have to go into the details of the math unless you're dying to. You might have encountered another book called Black Swans yeah. uh, by Nicholas uh, Taleb. Mandelbrot was before him, but this is basically part of the math on which that's based to say that extreme market movements happen much more frequently than most people and certainly the financial models expect. And we have to adjust for that. So I wonder, because I was reading this again and going through it, and I was thinking to myself, you know, it's just so clear. And you guys laid out very well in the book. There's a number of chapters in the beginning that describe different situations and mm-hmm. the likelihood of those situations happening. And it's very clear that things are moving much more than typical airfinger quote models would suggest. I wonder why, though, we haven't really seen a big push in the financial industry or in the economics industry into changing the models. And so uh, maybe that's a place that, you know, I, I don't know if that could be done or not, but why do you think it is that the models still are the same, like the Black-Scholes models, the normal distribution models? Why do you think that they still are used? Well, simply because it's convenient. That's the principal reason. These models, I mean, in the heart of this engine that I just referred to is what you call the normal distribution, which most of us know is the bell curve. Uh, again, this doesn't get rather detailed, but the fundamental assumption underlying these models is that, mathematically speaking, you have an equal probability of a price going up as down tomorrow. It's flipping a coin. It's the efficient market hypothesis it's referred to. And this is pumped into a spreadsheet. Gosh, I mean, anybody can do this on a spreadsheet. It's even standard on Excel that you can calculate probabilities yourself this way. And just to give you an idea of how weird this is, the crash in 2008 where we had something like a 7% drop on one day, September 29th. September 29th, right, yeah. yeah. $1.6 trillion wiped off the value of world markets in one day. According to the standard models, the probability of that is about one in a billion. That's B for boy, one in a billion. And, you know, you can say, well, it happened. You know, probability suggests that if there's a chance, it could happen. But you go on, and if you analyze all of this, the crash in 1998 that happened, a small one due to Russian market problems, the odds of that happening was one in 20 million on one day, the August 31. There was a string of days here. The odds of all of those happening, according to the standard model, are one in 500 billion. And it goes on, you know, the crash of 1987. The probability of that, according to the standard model, is less than 1 in 10 to the 50th. 10 to the 50th. This is insane. You know, it's just not correct. Now, you asked why it doesn't change, because this is not shocking news to serious mathematicians who work for the Wall Street banks. This is studied. The reason is that, for the most part, 
during most trading days, the models work okay. I mean, we are talking about outlier events, you know, crashes, booms, days, weeks here and there where something goes wrong. And most of the time, the model works fine. But the problem, of course, is you can say that, but then what about those days when it all goes wrong? Because, you know, as anybody who's ever made money or lost a lot of money in the market knows, the fastest way to do that is on one of these days when everything goes crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The analogy that I use, and it's funny, actually, your points that you have when I go through and I jot down my own notes that I keep in Apple Notes. And the first two points that you had were literally the first two points that I had written about the 29th of 2008 and 1998, those were so powerful to me because they just, again, reinforced this idea of how extreme things can be. And one thing that I try to tell people in the analogy I use is you can drive in a car on the highway and most of the time it's going to work out well, except for the one time where a drunk driver hits you, right? And you don't know when that's going to happen and you can do everything possible. You can protect yourself, you put your seatbelt on, you can drive in the right lane, but you can't protect from the drunk driver. And so, yeah, the seatbelt analogy is very good because most of the time you're fine without a seatbelt. But, you know, the Federal Reserve is driving without a seatbelt at the moment. You know, they've got these stress tests that they adopted for banks after the 2008 crash. These stress tests, which are supposed to give them an indication as to whether a major money center bank is safe or not, it's using these same flawed models. It's not a serious test of the kind of problem they're dealing with. And it means that we continue to live with the very real risk that there could still be bank failures and whatever the estimates of the Fed suggest. Sure. Do you think, because you talked to central bankers and you had said, and we talked about this before we started recording, but you had given speeches to central bankers and the policymakers. Do they realize that this is a problem? They just don't know how to fix it? Or is it so far down the chain of command that that's the least of their concerns as they start to... No, it's interesting. Mandelbrot and I, shortly after the book came out, had a meeting with the president of the European Central Bank, who was very interested in the thesis. And we talked about it with him and his chief economist for quite a while. And they understood it. Heck, you know, Angela Merkel has read our book yeah. and she loves it. The thesis is true. The problem, as I say, is that the standard models are very easy to use. They're entrenched in the system. And one must say that there is no good alternative yet. That is the problem. Now, Mandelbrot suggested one possible avenue of research to find an alternative. There are other alternatives that other people are searching for. Some of them surface from time to time in specialist hedge funds a different sort. I have no idea if they're actually working better or not, but it's kind of like a fundamental research project that needs to be done on a global scale to find a good alternative to the standard model. Once we find it, I have no doubt that it'll spread everywhere because obviously, you know, people want to make money. They don't want to lose it. Sure. Do you think the models are wrong in both directions, potentially, right? Crashes and booms? Yes. I feel like this, as I've traded through 2008, and anybody now who sees the VIX spike from 12 to 15 thinks it's crazy volatility. And I try to tell them, like, you haven't seen volatility. (laughs) You don't know what volatility is. Are we in the top end tail of a big boom type market that I sure didn't see coming? I don't think a lot of people saw coming necessarily how strong equities have been. Is this the exact point that you guys were trying to make that markets can be 
be rational and, and go beyond models in both directions. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, we lived through this in the late 90s, right? Fantastic boom market, the dot-com bubble and all that kind of stuff. And then, boom, it all disappeared. But, you know, I'm not going to make a forecast about the sure. market. Journalist, not an economist. But certainly it does look kind of risky at the moment that it's been going so fine. And I know volatility has been going up, but you know, it also has been previously, last year, it was lower than the norm. Sure. So it's an inherently risky world. And we ought to be better at estimating that. And an important point of Mandelbrot's research, it's a fool's game to try to predict whether it will go up or whether it will go down. But you can say something about the probability of volatility. It's going to be rough or it's going to be smooth. That's an important point. And of course, there are many financial instruments today that are based on that supposition. Sure. And you would suggest that we're probably more of a period, obviously, of lower volatility, which would naturally suggest that at some point we have to be at higher volatility. Yeah, probably. Are we in suspended animation? I don't think so. Right. Yeah, I would agree. So let me ask you this question. So there's Mandelbrot is no longer with us, but he did witness the 2008 crash. So did you guys talk about that together? Like, what was his reaction to that? Did he feel validated by that event? What was the general conversation around that? Yes, of course. Well, it was a pretty scary moment, as you and your listeners remember. In Europe, for instance, we're only now finally out of the post-2008 crash. I mean, this problem economically went on in Europe for a decade. It was a big deal. The 2008 crash did lead to a lot of interest in this thesis that, you know, one of the problems is that we underestimate the risk. As I say, however, the regulators reacted the wrong way, in my opinion. They imposed a series of tests and capital requirements on banks, which is good. You know, yeah, they should have done that before, but they were based on the old math. Better than nothing, but still not good enough. So he died in 2010, two years later. He was still pushing in his last few years to get there to be a recognition that we need more research on this. And, you know, it isn't just research. There's tons of market research out there, isn't there? I mean, you know, billions are spent on, by financial firms on trying to understand markets and forecast them and advise their clients. But almost all of it is private. This is a role for the public sector to spend considerably more money on trying to look at markets as almost a natural phenomenon, something that needs to be studied scientifically with that data shared publicly so that everybody can understand better. And as a whole, the ultimate objective is if we understand this very volatile system, perhaps we can control it better and therefore reduce the harm that it causes when it all blows up. Right. And I agree. And I think it's interesting because I believe you guys said in the book, and maybe you didn't, or I'm just thinking about this, but it's funny because a lot of data is shared for things like health, and cancer research is shared yeah. between between everybody. But you're right, a lot of it's not shared between financial firms and financial industries and sectors as a whole. And everybody seems to think that's okay. I don't think it, see, the pharma industry in Europe, the European Medicines Agency, requires big pharma companies when seeking approval to sell drugs in Europe, they are required to make public their test data from the clinical trials so that all their competitors can look at it so that public researchers can look at it 
and they can test it and see, is it right? Something like this should be happening in market economics. Should be a standard. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I agree. So maybe we can unpack a couple of these things too, which I think are really interesting points. One of the points that I thought was pretty interesting in the book was this idea of market memory. And I think that the idea of market memory, whether it's volatility clustering or just tending to happen after big days, big moves happening after big moves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think most of the models right now assume, and I guess this goes maybe all the way back to Bachelier or somebody else, that everything is fair and independent. And yeah, you guys know, is it like a coin toss. Yeah, like a coin toss. But the market memory thing, I think, is really interesting. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So as I said, the standard model assumes that there is no memory, that from one day to the next, from one trade to the next, it's just flipping a coin. In fact, even anecdotally, we know that's not true. There is, in fact, rather than price movements being independent of each other, we know there's dependence between the more memory, as you say. It's very typical that if you have one day of a big price movement, the next day is going to be some way linked to that, isn't it? Either it's going to be a reaction, a correction from it, or it's going to be a continuation from it. But clearly, we know there's a dependency between those two successive trading days. We know that there's dependence between, this is not just in the stock market, it's also true in commodities markets, in, in foreign exchange markets especially, heavy dependence between different events in the market. And so that's just common sense that that's the case. Now, Mandelbrot took this a little further using his fractal geometry and hypothesized, and you have to say it's a hypothesis, that there's something what he called long memory. So it isn't just from one day to the next in a relatively short period of time, but things that might happen 20 years ago in the market still has a very faint echo later on. I mean, as I meant, we, the 2008 crash, we know that that has echoed on for years afterwards in all kinds of increasingly difficult to track ways because the signal diminishes. But so part of his argument was to develop a set of mathematical tools to analyze that memory, what he called the long-term memory in the markets, and to make it quantifiable. And there have been some hedge funds that have used this math to try to develop instruments that, that people can play with as a result. Again, I make no advice one way or the other on whether these work. I frankly don't know. I just know that people have experimented with it and tried it. So that's one of the key problems in the standard model. As I say, they assume price movements are independent of one another when in fact we know that they are not. The other problem is what we mentioned earlier, that they also assume that the distribution of these price movements could fit a bell curve, you know, where most of the movements are very little and there will be some tails, some outliers of huge changes up or down, but very rare. And Mandelbrot's math suggests that those tails are far higher than the standard model suggests. That is to say, these extreme events happen much more frequently than the models say they should. And potentially right back to back, of course, or very yeah. close together. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what are you supposed to do with that? You know, I don't know. This is why we need the research. It's also comforting for fund managers or index funds or others to recommend to their clients a series of actions based on the standard models, because as I say, 
quite a lot of the time they'll be right. And investors are surprisingly not very judgmental when they're wrong. They just assume that, oh, well, stuff happens. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to happen. So do you think, and uh, and I guess the, the question here is two parts. So there's a scaling question here. It's been a very fascinating one for me to just personally start researching and digging into a little bit more, so this effect of scaling and how just different markets, intraday, daily, weekly, monthly, et cetera, have very similar distributions as far as scale goes. The reference to cotton in the book, yeah. somewhere in the middle, 150, 160 page, was amazing to me, was like wide eye opening to me. So yeah. when it comes so to scaling, yeah, you know, cotton prices going back over a century. And he found that there was in the cotton market, a consistent pattern of volatility and the scaling, that's a mathematical term, but basically it means that if you have a small cause, then you can have a big effect and that has a bigger effect and that has a bigger and bigger effect, kind of, you know, a power law basically. And so that's how you can very quickly get into kind of a feedback loop in which the severity of the crash quickly builds into a huge problem. But in the cotton market, he found that this dynamic, although prices varied over time, it was like a fingerprint of that market. And it didn't matter what was going on with government policy, you know, whether there were price supports or whether there was not, whether there was drought or whether there was not. It was like the cotton market had a fingerprint. And you could distinguish it from the dollar-euro market or the dollar-pound market. They each have their own characteristics of volatility, which he could measure and give parameters for. And that was his research. And I agree. I think it was amazing. And so the next question beyond that then, or related to that, is that in the book, it states at one point that economic beliefs are faddish. And so I wonder, not only just the faddish beliefs that we have today and potentially what your ideas on those are, you know, the idea of low interest rates, of central bank quantitative easing and whatever form or shape, but not only that, but also maybe just speaking to the point of low volatility, allowing the buildup of potentially higher volatility in the future. This power effect of low volatility right now has led to potentially the buildup of this unchained or potentially very wicked volatility we could see. Well, yes, it could happen. Again, I'm not going to make a market forecast. But no, I'm not asking you to. Just thinking about like the fads of what your thoughts are on maybe what economic beliefs are faddish today that everyone is latching onto. Part of the fad aspect right now on markets is fundamental analysis. That, you know, there's a narrative that goes through the market about what's happening with corporate profits, what's happening with world trade. You know, at the moment now, there's a lot of fear and loathing about what's happening with coronavirus. And so this is a consistent story that happens where people in markets are looking at very important trends that clearly do affect economic behavior and movements. And there's no question about that. But as I said, we're looking here at trying to, I won't say ignore, but trying to factor out that stuff and to look for the underlying fingerprints of the market of how it works internally to itself and, and as I said, at the moment, we have a, I won't call it a fad because it's what has been taught in business schools and on Wall Street for more than 50 years about how you're supposed to think about that risk. And that's what's built into the options models, into the capital asset pricing, et cetera, value at risk, whatever. I have a fear, you know, I mentioned after 2008, there was a lot more interest and you did see the growth of 
hedge funds that were trying different things. That's good. I fear that it's going to take another horrible crash to get people to pay attention to this issue again. And when it will be, who knows? But of course, there's no doubt that it's going to happen because nothing stays up as high this long. Sure. Yeah, I would agree with you. I stopped trying to predict the markets the first week that I started trading and lost a bunch of money the first week, as many of the listeners know. And my wife came back to me and she said, look, if this is what you're going to do, you know, she's like, you better find another you know, another job. <laughs> so uh, thanks to her, I quickly decided that I did not know where markets were going to go at any point or time or whatever. All right. So let's wrap up with this one. And by the way, this has been incredibly fascinating. And thank you again so much for coming. Last one here for me is really uh, just about the last chapter. So in the last chapter, Mandelbrot says, I want this one message to survive this book that finance must abandon its bad habits and adopt a scientific method. So having known him and having gone through the process of putting together the book, as you two did, in your opinion, do you think that this battle cry is ever going to reach the audience? And specifically, what should we be doing as individual investors now? Because we can't obviously change how everyone teaches it on Wall Street, how the big models are working at big banks and central banks. What can we be doing as individual investors right now? Well, first of all, just to be aware of the risk. But, you know, whatever you may be advised, just think for yourself for a moment about what if it's wrong. And so don't follow a herd. You just have to use your own head. You can dig into the math yourself of these. I mean, Mandelbrot's papers are public, but there are other approaches to this. So there's a branch of economics called econophysics, which tries to work in this area, trying to find new ways of approaching it. If you love math, then have at it. The most important thing, I think, is for people to persuade government, whether it's their congressman or whoever, that funding should be made available by the public sector to fund research as to how markets work. It is incredible to me that with so much of our lifestyle around the world and our health dependent on what happens to the Dow and the DAX and cable rates and all of these things, that we spend as a society so little money on public economic research in this to try to figure it out. I mean, it started well. The standard model began, you mentioned Louis Bachelier, a French mathematician, centuries ago. It started with him applying for the first time, taking the probability theories that had been developed in the late 19th century. And he was the first one who said, ah, I wonder if this can be used to analyze the way French government bonds move. And that's how this all began. He made some assumptions based on probability theory by now, 150 years old. And wow, it was cool, you know? It did a lot of things and it spread through business schools now everywhere. But it began with fundamental research. And that's what we need now, fundamental research to actually understand how markets work as if it were something on Mars. That's wonderful. Again, thank you so much for coming on today. This was uh, very insightful, very interesting for me. Hopefully it was great for you. So where can people learn more about you and what you do? I'm a journalist, as I say, 25 years of the Wall Street Journal and now with my own company called sciencebusiness.net in Brussels covering science policy. So when I say that we ought to be spending more money on economics research, I put my money where my mouth is. And actually, we have a news service that talks about this and other kinds of 
science policy. So that's what we're doing. And I will be actually now starting another book in this in this particular field on fractals. You'll probably hear more from me in a few years on this topic. It does take time, however, to do these. Wonderful. Well, we'll have you back on the podcast whenever it's appropriate. And I'll link everything up in the show notes page so everyone can get all the links to Richard's work and his company in the show notes page right on optionalpha.com. So again, thank you, Richard, so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, there you have it. There's our interview with Richard Hudson. Like we said before, we're going to have everything on the show notes page at optionalpha.com slash show 173. Again, that's just the number 173. I'm actually going to start into the overtime session of this podcast. And I just have to warn you before we actually start, this is probably going to be a long overtime for the podcast. We don't usually do this on interviews. We kind of wrap them up and end the podcast. But I feel like this topic is so important that there's some other things that to me need to be addressed and need to be said. So if this runs over or longer, then I apologize in what our normally scheduled production is for podcasts. But at the same time, I feel like this could add a lot of value and a lot of help to a lot of people. And so I don't want to cut this short when there's a lot that needs to be discussed. Now, before we actually start that, I think that there's one big false belief that I'm seeing right now in the market. And so as I'm recording this on Tuesday, the 24th, 2020, obviously stocks have been crushed. Obviously everything that Richard and I had talked about has really kind of come full circle and we see markets move faster than ever, more volatility than ever. And in such a quick time period, one of the biggest false beliefs that I see right now out in the market is this idea that markets will rebound. And I think that this is a really presumptive assumption in that we think that as investors, things that have happened before in the past will always happen again in the future. And I truly fear, and I really hope that I'm wrong, but I truly fear that a lot of people are coming back around to the old hope and pray model. And I don't think that we can assume that what has happened in the past will continue to happen in the future in the same way. And we're now going through yet again another major market meltdown and crash as we've experienced and as we will continue to experience in the future, these black swan crash type events. And I don't know if the markets will rebound so quickly this time. Or let's just say that I think it would be a hard argument to say just because markets had V-shape reversals the last two times that that means that we're going to have a V-shape reversal and markets will rebound all the way this time. If they do, great. And I'm totally wrong and that's fine. But if they don't, what's your plan? And that's what I would tell everyone right now. If they don't rebound, if we go through a period like Japan is still going through where we have decades of no return to the highs or not even close to return to the highs, then how does that change your outlook? How do you change your strategy and your investment thesis moving forward? And I think that is something that not a lot of people are looking at right now. I see on Twitter and on Instagram, on Facebook, I've been scrolling and kind of watching and listening to all the discussion that happens. And I see a lot of people saying things like, just stay the course. Markets always go back up. We'll get back to the highs. You know, But what if they don't? What if they don't actually get back to the highs? What if it takes 10 years? What if it takes 20 years to get back to the highs? Can you really afford to do that? And I think that where most people are in the stage of their life, the long-term numbers of a 50 or 100 year market probably will return to the highs at some point. But can you afford to wait 30 years? Can you afford to wait 20 years to return to the highs? Or maybe you should do something now or learn a new strategy now. I mean, for God's sakes, at least learn covered calls if you're a regular stock investor to help reduce cost basis and reduce volatility. So that I think is very presumptive. The second thing I'll say as we get into this kind of overtime segment is, again, if you do find this helpful, please let us know. Share this with your friends, your family. Give us a rating and a review on iTunes. 
got a lot of great ratings and reviews and I really appreciate it, but we need to get this into the hands of more people like you guys. And so if you really enjoy this, please share this with friends and family, write a post about it, write a blog about it, share it on your Twitter, your Facebook, just rate us and review it on iTunes. It takes two minutes. So let me start this discussion in overtime, just kind of going back to last year. I alluded to it in the beginning of today's podcast, but last year in 2019, I went on a personal mission, if you will, to understand and to dig much deeper into volatility products and risk management and hedging techniques. And it has been something that has been on the top of my mind for a couple of years now, not only because the markets have been really overvalued and we see this all the time, but they just continue to go higher, but also because I was really in a place where I felt like I didn't have a justification for why I was trading the way that I was. The last two years, I've been highly criticized for flat-ish performance. In 2018, after the markets went down, we did make money and end the year profitable, even though the markets were lower. And we were up a couple of percent. And then in 2019, when the markets were raging higher, we were only up a couple of percent. And so this flattish performance that we've had Though we obviously don't want to mimic the S&P, that's our whole goal is to not be correlated to the markets, was highly critical and frankly was really damaging to some degree to me. And I went on this mission last year to understand, you know, is this really just what everyone is saying? Maybe it's a way that I'm trading. Am I not taking the appropriate actions that I need to take? Am I not really understanding the strategies and the risk and the returns? Because I saw a lot of people taking an obscene amount of risk and making ridiculous returns. And I knew it couldn't be just that. I knew it couldn't be intuitively after doing this for more than 10 years, that it couldn't just be that they got luckier. Maybe it could be, right? And so I went on this personal mission to kind of understand what risk really was and how much risk we needed to take and how much risk we didn't need to take and how we could protect ourselves, how we could hedge ourselves. I sent the team on a mission to understand volatility and VIX hedging and to go through a lot of analysis on that so that we could really kind of formulate a game plan based on data and not just speculation. And so to me, this has been kind of the culmination and really the beginning of a major project for me to understand and to kind of morph myself into a better trader on every level. And I personally believe, and whether you agree with this or not, it's up to you, that's your opinion, but I personally believe that every good trader and investor should learn and adapt and model their behavior based on new information that they learn. I don't think that I'm pigeonholed enough to say that if I see something new or something that doesn't jive with what I thought I believed about the world or the markets or strategies, that I should be so naive as to stay pigeonholed into my position just because that's the position I've had forever. I think that a really good investor, hopefully, and a really good trader is able to adapt and change and be flexible to new information and new data as it presents itself. And so what we started doing last year, and we were very open about this, again, highly criticized for doing it, though I explained exactly why we were doing it. We started doing it over the last, really it's over the last two years, we started trading a lot more iron butterflies. Iron butterflies to me are one of those strategies that we found in backtesting that just, that worked pretty well. It wasn't a strategy that was the highest, highest performing ROI, but as far as volatility and risk and consistency goes, it was a strategy that I felt comfortable using. And I've consistently said that the reason that I loved iron butterfly strategies was because I thought that the tails were underpriced. It was things like the book here with Richard Hudson and Mendelbrot. It was other research that we've done personally in-house about tail risk and earnings trading and regular trading and hedging that we've done that really kind of drew that conclusion that we needed a way to protect from outsized large moves in one direction or another. 
And I thought that with iron butterflies and iron condors and just spreads in general, that that's a really easy way to do it. In fact, we've done a number of videos that are now all public about why we think that iron butterflies had underpriced the tails. And you could buy these cheap, cheap, cheap long wings for pennies on the dollar when selling an iron butterfly, which is basically a straddle synthetic. And so to us, this was something that we've continued to do over the last couple of years. Again, it was not well accepted really in the options community at large, had a lot of criticism about why we did it. But in the three weeks that have previously gone through in this market crash, there's a reason why now everyone understands, oh, that's right. That's why we need to do it because things are so volatile, much more than we expect and can move further than anyone predicts. And we've come out of this basically very well off. Now we're currently down on the year about four or 5%, depending on the fluctuation of the day-to-day movements of the market as it stands right now. But that's totally manageable compared to some other people who just frankly took more risk and are down significantly more or basically out of the game. And so that was one thing that we started doing a number of years ago was to trade more risk-defined positions. The other thing that we started doing is we started to look at trading a core list of ticker symbols. Now, again, we've talked about this a lot. If you're a member and if you're a part of our community, you've probably undoubtedly heard me say this. All the videos for many of the trades that we've done now are public because they go public 20 or 30 days after we post them. But we started trading this core list of uncorrelated tickers. And the part one here is that these uncorrelated tickers we found over time give us the most diversity in our portfolio for non-crash type markets. And I think it's important to understand that diversity is not just trading Facebook and Twitter. Those are highly correlated industries. You need to trade things that are uncorrelated to one another, or let's just say as uncorrelated as they could possibly get. So we came up with this list and we've been sharing this with everyone, things like GLD and TLT and EWW and FXI. And we wanted to trade this list of uncorrelated asset classes as much as possible. Now, the problem with this, and we've been, again, not shy about disclosing this, we've posted all the videos publicly on YouTube. All of our members know that we have been talking about this for many months now. The problem with all of this correlation research that we did was that all of the correlations break down in a crash environment. And this is exactly what we've just seen in the last three weeks in the current market meltdown, is that every correlation that we thought we had that does give us benefit during low implied volatility times really just totally breaks down and everything acts like one big market position. This is why we've seen things like gold start to move with the market. We've started to see basically every security and sector move down with the market because correlations go out the window when you need it the most. And this is the reason why we started trading a VIX hedging strategy back at the end of 2019, because we'd done a lot of testing. We've done a lot of research. We knew that we had to get something else after finding out that all this correlation stuff kind of breaks down in a market crash. We knew we had something that would give us asymmetric returns for crash type scenarios. And at the time, VIX was the best appropriate thing. And I still think it is. I'm interested to see now after all of this stuff kind of calms down over the next couple of weeks potentially and we get more data on how high and how far the VIX has moved and what strategies worked, how we can kind of maybe adapt or continue to change our VIX hedging strategy moving forward. I'm sure that we will make adjustments to that strategy based on new information that we have. But it really, really helped out having that in place when we started to go through a crash type scenario. And so for us, it's putting all of these pieces together to reassess how much risk we truly have in our portfolios. 
it is going to be a life-changing environment for everybody moving forward. Every investor, every person, every human now having gone through this is going to have a different perspective on markets and risk, hopefully for the better. And I think that we still have to be vigilant in understanding this because the next move could be right around the corner. We don't know if this is the end. I mean, I'm recording this on the 24th of March, 2020. We don't know if this is the bottom. This could be halfway down for all we know. And so I think that the assumption that we have these big moves in the markets and now they're done and then we go back to normal market situations, I think is frankly just false and misguided. And so my goal here in this overtime is to kind of, again, present some more of this data to you so you understand it, some things that we didn't necessarily go through in our interview with Richard Hudson. So I'm going to go through some of the bullet points that I took out of the book. These are my things that I wrote down personally. A lot of this is quoted from the book. So much of what I will say and kind of discuss here comes right from the text. So I make no arguments to say that this is my words, this is their words, and I'll make reference to that as we continue to go through this. I wanted to share my notes on this because I feel like there's so many different moving parts here that we have to wrap all of this up in hopefully one discussion. And if there's questions at the end, I hope you guys add them to the show notes page or just tag us or hit us up on any of the social media platforms. So the first thing that I want to go through is, again, just the data itself. You know, the data to me doesn't lie. You know, I, I continuously say this, the data about what works and what doesn't work and what the assumptions are and what, you know, reality is continues to be proven out. And I hope that what we do here at Option Alpha is really a guiding light to many people in how they should use data to their advantage. The biggest one that just kind of sticks out to me as a sore thumb is always stop losses. The data around stop losses is pretty undeniable that stop losses create more losing trades as a systematic way to trade. Now, of course, you can make one-off arguments that if you had a stop loss during the recent crash, that you would be better off. Of course, no doubt. That's a one-off kind of sample size. But in our research and many others, consistently using a stop loss, because we don't know when market crashes are going to happen or not, then it generates more losing trades. That to me is a representation that data itself can crush any of these supposed theories or models, you know, that really, really good theories can be crushed under the weight of very good data. And so as we keep going forward, one of the things that you should have taken away from this podcast, and I think it's worth repeating because it just happened again the last three weeks, is that most of the standard normal models that are out there far underestimate the tail risk type of events. And we see this all the time because we've seen it historically. In September 29th, 2008, the market went down 7%. The odds of that actually happening were one in a billion. In 1998, on August 4th, the Dow fell 3.5%. Three weeks later, it fell another 4.5%. Then again, on August 31st, it fell 6.8%. Again, standard theory would assume that the odds of that happening is 1 in 20 million, or basically like 1 every 100,000 years we should see that. So basically, we should have never seen that type of event. The move that we just had in the markets should never, ever have occurred in hundreds of thousands of years under the current models and assumptions. The idea that the market would consistently hit 5, 7, 15, 10, 9% lower on sequential days in either direction. And so what we have to understand about every single model that's out there, every assumption, is that they far underestimate the tail risk of the market. This doesn't mean necessarily that you have to stop trading undefined risk strategies. It just is a reconfirmation that we have to keep appropriate levels of risk management in place. Whether that means being in cash, whether that means trading risk-defined strategies, whether that means trading a basket of uncorrelated tickers, 
or it means quickly adjusting your position as volatility starts to increase. Whatever that means for you, I guess as Richard even said in the podcast, you have to be aware of the risk that's inherent in the market. Now, another bullet point that I'll go through is this kind of history around you know how we even got to this point. I thought that that was one of the coolest things about this book is that you know kind of walk through this history, this progression of like. How do we get to this point where we're here, where literally the leaders of the Central European Bank and, you know, potentially the Fed, I'm sure they've read it or advisors have read the book or kind of thought about the thought process and theory. How do we get to the point where we still don't have an answer, where everything is so ingrained in how we think about models and finance that we just keep messing it up? And it really kind of, in many respects, goes back to Bachelier. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I still can't say it perfectly. But Bachelier had this idea about a random walk in a bell curve theory when looking at French bond markets. And what he assumed was that there were fair games. And this to me is like the starting point of this whole theory that just kind of expanded out for decades and decades. But his thought process looking at bond markets in France was that there's fair games, that each toss of this proverbial coin was a 50-50 chance with most importantly, no memory of what happened before. Now, Here's where I'll pause and say this. I believe, and I think that the data would suggest, that in many market situations, this is accurate. I think that the chance of predicting where the market goes on a day-to-day basis is very, very much random. I think that it's almost impossible to predict where the markets are going to go on a day-to-day basis. We've seen studies from us and from other people that have said, you know, basically this autocorrelation between the markets on a long-term scale is zero, that there's no rhyme or reason to say that markets correlate up or correlate down or that they move. But that's during a really, really long data set. When you break it up into low volatility, kind of calm markets, and then high volatility, you actually see that the market clearly has a memory. If anybody has traded through the last three weeks, you know the market has a memory because the only thing on people's minds right now is coronavirus and everyone in quarantine. And so if you believe that today's market environment has no memory of what happened three weeks ago, then you'd be totally wrong in assuming that because it clearly does. And because your actions today have memory of what happened yesterday. And so what you do today or what you do tomorrow has you know, this long memory of what happened in the past. And so the models from day one, though, have assumed that everything was fairly priced with no memory. That this idea that after a price move, you can look at it, you can deduce a cause or effect of why it happened. But before the price move, it's very difficult to predict the news. And so you just assumed, look, markets are fairly priced. And again, I would argue that this is the case 99% of the time, 98% of the time, right? When things are just kind of moving and there's no shock type of events, I would say that that's probably pretty accurate, that markets are fairly pricing what they think is appropriate. And then we get this market changing information that shifts the entire equilibrium overnight. And so now this idea is things that we think are in this random walk or this equilibrium walk don't actually occur. Now, the next stage of this was this Brownian motion theory. And the term is borrowed from physics, actually. This idea that molecules in a uniform, warm medium kind of work in this uniform motion, this Brownian motion theory, the normal distribution. And so Bachelier basically took this theory from physics and said, okay, let's apply this to prices for building a model of market prices, of bond prices in France. And so he used this variation model and had to come up with a lot of critical assumptions to make it work. Obviously, the first was that prices were independent. So what we've already talked about, there's no memory, there's no history, every independent price is an independent price. 
Again, I would argue in most environments, this is probably the case, that markets move generally independent of each other and that when there's no shock to the system, that things move kind of in random fashion. Now, if we make this assumption that prices are independent of one another and that they have no memory of what happened before, then this is where the origins of this normal distribution come from. This idea that, okay, if prices are independent, there's no memory, there's an equal chance of everything happening or an equal probability and distribution, then when you start to plot out price movements, you could plot them potentially on a normal distribution Brownian type graph. And this is where, to me, when you look at the data and research, you cannot argue that this is how it happens in reality, that theory and actual price movements are nowhere near this. I think that they rhyme, that they're similar, but you can clearly see, as we've already shown, and as Richard already talked about in the interview, that prices move far more on the tail ends than people expect. And actually, prices stay more towards the center than people would expect or that normal distributions would expect. In my opinion, the book on page 93 was really a changing page for me because it showed these different distributions of price changes judged by standard deviation. And if you looked at those, you would say to yourself, okay, that one's fake. And that's basically the model. That's what everyone assumes the prices are. And then all the other ones, which were real price changes, it didn't look anything like what the model would suggest. And again, it was just really fascinating and very eye-opening to me that these large changes of say five standard deviations, seven standard deviations or more happened basically thousands of times more than expected. And it was really, really fascinating. Something that should happen you know, once every 7,000 years happened every three to four years. And that tells us that you know, this normal distribution model is probably underestimating the tails and overestimating the actual center point or how non-volatile things can be. Some of the other things I thought were really interesting is this idea of just fractal economies and fractal markets. You know, this is a tough concept to grasp. I know for me, it was when I was reading this and when I read anything around finance and math, I still get it, but I have to read it slowly. I'm that type of person where I'll read it four or five times to make sure I truly try to understand it. Probably still don't understand it as much as I should. Um, But I think this idea around fractal markets and fractal price changes was really enlightening because this idea suggests that as you zoom in or zoom out on price changes, you really couldn't tell the difference if I took away the timeline. And this was something that I want to do in an upcoming course as we start to redo our courses here at Option Alpha and improve what we are teaching and how we're teaching it is do this model in a course where you take away the time and price scale and you just show people different charts. And I doubt that anybody could suggest that one is always a monthly or a weekly or a daily or a five minute or a 10 minute, that as you zoom in or zoom out of a price chart and price movement, you can't tell what's actually daily versus weekly or intraday versus daily. And that's really, really fascinating. In fact, as it was going through this and kind of talking about the distribution of cotton prices, as we alluded to in the interview, you really saw basically the same volatility profile in every increment on intraday, on daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. It's all the same profile of distribution. There was no differential. And so the idea is that every market, every security potentially has its own volatility profile that can be modeled to some degree on different fractal periods. And I thought this was a good analogy of this, but we can think of financial prices in the same way. It's not predictable, but 
potentially controllable, that under certain circumstances, the best we can do is evaluate the odds for or against some certain outcome. And they had said that this is not to say the probability governs global finance or world markets, but instead that the real world of fast markets, veiled in motions and uncertain probable outcomes, that probability is a tool at our disposal. And they said randomness, even in coin flips, have more than one state, that things can look complex just merely because of the outcome of a random process. This is fascinating to me because we talked about this ad nausea in podcasts. In fact, the podcast that we did maybe 10 episodes ago or so where we talked about this risk of sequencing is so great in trading that people don't really understand how powerful it is. And they alluded to it that you could have a process where, say, a coin flip is random but it doesn't always gyrate exactly around 50-50. You could have in a coin flip uh, sequence 25 heads in a row, and then it could be an even distribution of 50 heads, 50 tails. But that still means that the total outcome so far, because of that first string of random trades, is now nowhere near overall 50-50. And it's just this idea that coin flips and anything in a probability can be in totally different states. You can have this sequencing risk that makes it look like it's winning more or losing more often than it should. And that becomes an issue. That becomes an issue because people overallocate, because they underallocate, because they don't keep it up long enough to actually see that start to normalize at some point. And that was really interesting. So another little bullet point that I had from this was talking about Markowitz theory and efficient portfolio theory. Basically, you know, this is a big one, and I learned this myself in finance and undergraduate school at UVA. This is a big thing. I remember, you know, going through this, and, and we teach this idea, this efficient portfolio theory, because this is what the S&P is based off of. This is what most markets are based off of right now, this idea that if you mix these components of a portfolio together and you get as many highly diversified components together with the best mix of risk and reward based on all these correlations to each other in the market, you can create potentially this most efficient portfolio. But Markowitz himself pointed out that that theory actually relied too heavily on the bell curve. And he said it's simple, but it's not effective. And that you need incredible forecasts for earnings, volatility, interest rates, as well as covariances between all of these stocks moving forward. And so how likely are those things to be accurate or even close to accurate moving forward? So can we take what we know about the known universe of stocks and correlations together and create something like the S&P 500, which is based off of the efficient portfolio theory? And can we take that at a current state right now with what we know? And we can, but it assumes that we know everything about future volatility and future earnings and interest rates. Well, again, we just learned this week that we don't, that all of these models and forecasts for volatility and interest rates moving forward all have to be redone in an instant. And so what we thought was maybe the model portfolio, the S&P, which everyone uses as the benchmark, maybe relies too much on future forecasts of things that we just don't understand as much as we think we do. And so as a result, maybe it's a broken system to use that. Maybe it's an inefficient system to use that. Maybe it's why we continue to see crash after crash after crash after periods of time. And I think that that was really insightful. Then you get into modern portfolio theory, which is kind of an evolution on efficient portfolio theory, this idea that markets are efficiently priced of all information. And this is Eugene Fama. But he basically said that markets are independent with no memory, again, going kind of back to Bachelier, and that variance and standard deviation are now the good proxies for risk. So Markowitz provided the bell curve correctly 
and said that that assumes how distribution of prices move. And then we had Sharp come, come along and say, okay, now we need to include beta and the cost of capital. And then we come along with Eugene Fama and kind of throw all these things together into modern portfolio theory and say, look, now we have to include variance and standard deviation, which now become good proxies for risk. Again, I would generally agree, except for the tails. The tails are what kills people. And so you throw all of these things together and you get basically this Black-Scholes model for options pricing, which is what is standardly used, still used today. It's the best, worst thing that we have. We don't have an alternative. So it just becomes a simplicity thing to use that. But the Black-Scholes model is right as long as the assumptions of a bell curve are relevant and that prices move continuously without memory. But again, we know that they don't. So all of these option pricing models that are out there now work 98% of the time the way that they should. Normal distribution, the distribution of returns are all like perfectly aligned. 2019 was probably a good example. It's where the distribution of returns modeled mostly a bell curve. Now, the final little talking point for this especially with the whole edifice of modern financial theory is that it assumes wrongly that people are rational and self-interested. And again, we've seen this not only previously in the 1990s and the 2000s and now the 2020s, but that's wrong that we do get into mob psychology, irrational bubble and burst type of environments. And so this idea that the bell curve is the standard metric by which distributions of returns are variated and that we get prices that are independent and identically distributed like a coin game. And now there's no memory of the market. And again, you see how it just continues to build one on top of another that in many respects, a lot of assumptions that have gone into this just don't work anymore. just don't work when precisely you need them to work. So the last couple points here I thought were really interesting. And I know I'm kind of jumping around here. This is not meant to be a a straight up review of every chapter. I thought that these were kind of the most important points. The last thing I want to talk about was getting back to Black Scholes because Scholes and Merton actually created a fund together. And this was really, really fascinating. I knew of this history, but didn't know as much detail as was laid out kind of in the book. But Scholes and Merton created this new fund called Long-Term Capital Management. And they ended up raising about $7 billion in this fund and did really well. And their strategy was really straightforward. They searched for options that were priced wrong based on the models. So they had their Black-Scholes model, which they knew could price things, but they knew that at some point things were priced wrong. And they would search for options and try to take advantage of these mispricing and options. That sounds very similar to what we try to do here at Option Alpha anyway. So I understand the thought project and logic around it. And they used leverage. I just don't understand why people continue to do this. They used leverage, sometimes heavy leverage, as great as 50 to 1 to take advantage of these. Now, think about it for a second. And I've continued to point this out time and time again. Leverage is a wonderful thing when used appropriately. 50 to 1 leverage makes you look like a rock star when you do things great but it makes you look like a complete idiot when things go the other way. And in the course of human history and finance, how many times have we learned this lesson? And we continue to learn it over and over and over again. And I don't know when it's going to come through, but leverage can kill. It can make you look really smart in a bull market or when things are going well, but it can make you look like a complete idiot when things go the opposite direction. And so their hedge fund was doing really, really well, but then it blew up in 1998. Listen, the guy that actually created the Black-Scholes model used his model to try to profit up the markets and blew up in 1998 after profits of 42% in 1995 and almost 41% in 1996. They looked amazing. 
they looked like rock stars. In fact, people probably poured money into their fund because they had really, really good returns. But what they started doing is they started taking risky bets on directional prices in bonds with leverage. And so when the Russian government defaulted on bonds and it triggered a market meltdown everywhere, their fund had one of the biggest positions in bonds and was stuck holding the bag because things blew up overnight, basically. And so global markets, far from displaying independent prices, were suddenly all marching in the same direction with the same volatility. And so what they ended up doing, again, as I continue to point out time and time again, I'm like pounding the desk on this because it's so important. Look at every single major fund, capital program, business that has blown up in the options trading space. And they inevitably did two things really, really bad. They were highly focused in one or a few markets and they had a massive amount of leverage. So not only did their long-term capital management, the fund that Merton and Scholes basically built, did they blow up because they were highly leveraged and they were basically trading one market at the time. But you also look at things like optionsellers.com, which blew up a couple of years ago because they were trading oil and natural gas, again, highly leveraged. What do you think is going to happen when you trade one market with a lot of leverage and the inevitable black swan comes across, you're going to blow up. The other one I'll point out to you that you should research is the yes strategy from Citigroup. Now, I've talked about this on Facebook Lives and the podcast before and multiple calls and emails with people, but the yes strategy was this yield enhancement strategy. That's actually a clever marketing name for what Citigroup put together, but it was basically iron condors on the SPX. At its core, that's not a bad strategy. It's a really good strategy. And I understand why they did it. But then they started doing it with leverage and they only traded SPX. And so as a result of leverage and highly focusing on one single product, when the market went down at the end of 2018, the yes strategy blew up and it blew up in spectacular fashion to the degree at which SETI Group is still probably going through lawsuits now as a result of it. Not a bad strategy, bad risk management. One product, high leverage, right? So don't kill the strategy. The strategy was good. They were selling iron condors on SPX. That's good. You just can't sell it just on that with leverage. And again, like we see this time and time again in history. I thought that was insanely fascinating to hear just that happen over and over again. So I'll leave you with this one kind of final thought here. And I know this has been a little bit long. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Like I said, would love to know your take on this, your thoughts, send me an email, shoot me a message everywhere at Option Alpha. Let us know what you think. The one thing that I think I took away from this was this idea that pictures and in many respects, data that we see that we don't really understand from every angle can deceive as well as instruct. This idea that our brain highlights what it imagines as patterns, and then it disregards contradictory information. And I feel like we've all been subject to this for sure because we're all humans. We see what we want to see in the charts. We see what we want to see in the data that comes across. But we need to look at all the information, try to understand it from every possible direction, every angle that we could possibly understand it from. Or one of our values here at Option Alpha is this idea around a growth mindset. And I really try to instill this in everybody here because it has been instilled in me forcefully from the markets over the last 10 years, this idea that we don't have all the information, that we continuously need to learn, that there is no information that is right or wrong, that all information is useful or not. And so if we find information that's useful, even if it contradicts what we thought was the reality before, we need to take note of that. And unfortunately, human nature 
has been developed over years and years to see order and hierarchy in the world because that's how we survive. And we invent this fabrication of what things should be or we highlight patterns or associations that maybe just don't actually occur when we dig deeper. And so I would encourage you to use this podcast hopefully as a starting point to start understanding risk and markets a little bit more and start encouraging other people to understand risk and markets a little bit more. That nothing is necessarily what it seems on the outside, that you should understand everything that you trade, that you should understand the relationship between the things that you trade and how they could impact everything else in your portfolio and everything beyond your portfolio. I think people really got a wake-up call during this 2020 crash because now they understand just how interconnected markets are and just how much we rely on other market forces to run our day-to-day lives. And I think it was a big wake-up call for a lot of people. And I think we're going to learn from this and hopefully come out of this as smarter, more efficient, more risk-defined, more risk-management-focused traders and investors. So as always, hopefully you guys enjoy this. All the show notes will be available, as always, over at optionoffer.com slash show 173. Again, if you enjoyed this, you want to send this out to a friend, a family member, we truly appreciate that. Get this into the hands of other people who need it and need to hear this message. And now our favorite part of the show, Trader Q&A, where we ask a question from one of our current members about options trading. Got a question you'd like to ask Kirk to answer live on the air? Just head on over to optionalpha.com forward slash ask and hit the record button to leave a message. That's optionalpha.com forward slash ask. And now here's today's question. Hey, Kirk. This is Todd from uh, Pensacola, Florida. I'm a recent member to your uh, lifetime elite membership. And first thing I want to say is just thank you for all the education you've given. Man, I just, I didn't know nothing until I came to your site. But my question is, is about collar and stocks currently on, which I own several stocks. And I've been selling uh, cover calls on them. But I come across a strategy called a collar where they buy put. But nothing I've found uh, so far has exactly explained to me the benefits of that or the risk of that. So if you could answer that maybe on your Option Alpha podcast instead of your daily call, because that's the one I happen to listen to at work, I would appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So Todd, thank you so much for submitting your question. And thank you so much for being an engaging member in the community, not just only for submitting this question. I know that you're an engaged member. We trade emails back and forth quite often. So I appreciate that as well. So caller strategies, I think are great. I think that they are a great way to reduce the risk of a potential equity position without having to incur, in many cases, the additional cost of insuring that particular position. And we've talked about this in a number of podcasts and Facebook lives, but our idea around a collar would generally be to do them costless. And if you can do them costless, then it helps to alleviate some of the downside risk that could be inherent in a tail major market crash scenario like what we just went through. And if you're trading equity, obviously the first point here is you have to want to own the equity. I mean, that that should be self-explanatory. There should be a really, really strong desire and underlying reason why you want to own the equity. When you do a costless collar, you're basically combining a covered call with a long put option strategy. And so you sell a call option, say for $100, maybe $10 above where the stock is trading now. You use that $100 to go out and buy a put option at a lower strike from where the stock is trading. And if you can do this 
for no extra money out of your pocket. So you use the $100 on the call option to pay for a put option that's $100 as well, then it becomes cost less. And that to me is good from a return standpoint because it doesn't drag down your returns on the equity by using extra money to just say, go out and buy a long put option. Now we have an upcoming podcast actually on protective put strategies and kind of the research around protective put strategies coming up. So we'll dig deeper into that, but it's not really that productive is the end result. So protective put strategies do reduce volatility, but they also really drag down returns because it costs money to insure that position. And that insurance cost is usually a little bit overstated. So I like the idea of doing a costless collar. The problem that you'll have with it is that the costless collar will usually only protect the really, really far tail events. And in this environment, that probably would have been a great thing to have on. I think a lot of people probably had some costless collars on that they're really happy that they had on. But it doesn't protect against, say, you know, the 10%, maybe 15% move fluctuations in the stock. And it's not meant to do that. So I think the idea with the costless collar is if you're willing to kind of sacrifice a little bit of the upside gain beyond a certain strike price, you can potentially protect yourself from getting the knockout blow from another black swan type tail event or risk happening. And I think it's worth it. So I think that, you know, you should definitely look deeper into costless collars. We have a lot of training on it. We'll link some of that up in the show notes that everyone can take a look at. So again, if you guys want to get your question answered here on the podcast, simply head on over to optionalpha.com slash ask, just like Todd did, and click the big red button in the middle of the screen and leave me a private voicemail. Again, there's no software to download or install. It's incredibly easy, and we get that queued up right for the next episode, right as we start getting these messages in. So let's get into the closing bell segment and wrap up this podcast where we're going to talk about a new trade that we're making today in QQQ. Now. The closing bell. Find out which stocks we're looking at right now, trades we're making, and hear our game plan moving forward. All right, so new trade today that we're making in QQQ, and actually this is a trade that we made yesterday on Monday, March 23rd. I'm recording this in the morning on March 24th, so we'll see what happens on this. We could potentially be at the bottom of a market, could be at the beginning of just another leg down in equity markets, but at least at this point, what our portfolio needs is we need a little bit of bearish exposure. Now, what we've been doing over the last couple weeks is we've been trading directionally bearish positions and we continue to add a couple bearish positions. And then as they become profitable, we remove the ones that are profitable and add some more. So we continue to maintain some bearish exposure as the market goes down. Now, I've talked about this concept before, and we teach a lot about this concept of not digging yourself deeper into a hole as positions are moving against you. Unfortunately, what I think a lot of people have done so far in this market is they've tried to pick a bottom, but we don't know where the bottom is yet. Could we be at the bottom today? Maybe. Could we be at the bottom last week? Maybe not because <laughs> markets were mostly higher than where they are here. Could we be at the bottom in two weeks? We have no idea. But the problem that I see a lot of people doing in these types of crash situations is they try to pick a bottom by trying to bottom feed. And we've done that with a couple of positions here and there, but we've also maintained this really, really aggressive stance on trading bearish, and that has served us pretty well. So today is meant to reestablish some new bearish positions. And one of the ones that we're reestablishing is a position in QQQ. And at the time that we're making this trade, the queues are trading around 170 or so. And so we're going to end up going out and buying a debit spread. Yes, you heard me right, buying a debit spread on the put side. So we're going to buy the 175 put and we're going to sell the 165 put and we're going to pay a debit of $4.10. 
Now we actually did a similar type strategy with SPY last week that has worked out pretty well. Now we're doing a combination of selling credit spreads and buying debit spreads. And the debit spreads to me are a means to take more immediate advantage of a move down. When we sell a credit spread, we're selling a credit spread out of the money and we're still playing the market directionally lower to sell a call spread, for example, but we're giving the market a little bit of a cushion to move up against our position. Now that's been the bulk of what we've been doing. And so even today we had a trade in DIA where we sold a credit spread and we sold three of those. We've done series of four and five contracts across all these different tickers to really get the bulk of our position as short premium bearish exposure. But we also want to kind of feather in here some more directional debit spreads, which take advantage of a more immediate move down because they're replacing them right at the money. In this case, we're just doing a single contract, a single wide spread that's $10 wide. But if the market goes down from here, we get immediate exposure and we could potentially take this thing off very quickly and replace it with something else. And so again, in my particular case, this is my portfolio right now, I have a portfolio that's beta weighted a little bit higher than where the markets are at the time I'm recording this. My portfolio center is about 15 points higher than where the S&P is at this time. So at the time I'm recording this, the S&P is basically at 220, 225 or so is where it closed today. We're looking at a center of our portfolio. Actually, it's a little bit higher than that on the S&P. It's about 250, 245-ish or so. So we've done a good job of moving the center of our portfolio lower, but we still have some bullish exposure. And so as a result, we don't want to add more bullish exposure just to dig ourselves deeper into a hole. We want to get some positions on that give us bearish exposure. So if the market continues to go lower, we don't lose any more money from where we're at here. So that's why we're doing this particular debit spread in the queues. Again, this is to me, I think something that you could use in your arsenal. Do you have to use debit spreads? Do you have to use credit spreads? You be the judge of that. We like to do mostly credit spreads and kind of filter in a couple little debit spreads here and there just to get more immediate downside exposure. So in our case, like I said, we're doing the Q position, the 175 puts, the 165 puts that we're selling, paying a $4.10 debit. So if this thing works out, we make about $600 on a quick move down in the markets. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that you know even any strong rallies that we see from here could potentially be met with more gyrations in either direction. So as we just even discussed on the podcast today, we're in a period where there's high volatility. And so all of this volatility is going to cluster together and we will undoubtedly get continued moves in both directions that are much more than people expect. Thanks for listening to the Option Alpha podcast. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a rating or comment. Plus, you can get everything. Free email updates for future shows, transcripts, video tutorials, case studies, and more. Just visit our website at optionalpha.com. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's podcast episode here at Option Alpha. As always, before you go, let's keep the conversation going. Please connect with me on your favorite social media platform. Let me know what questions you have, ideas, what you thought about this podcast and our interview today with Richard Hudson that kind of came to mind after listening to today's show. Also, I want to let you know what we've got coming up next week on the podcast. Next week, we're going to be talking about why we stopped trading earnings after we completed a big research project around earnings. Now, this should be something that's nothing new necessarily to a lot of people because we've stopped trading earnings for quite some time now. But now we're going to dig into the research on next week's podcast. So you don't want to miss that show number 174, why we stopped trading earnings after we saw this new research where we're going to go through 
all the research around earnings trades, how far things move, do they reverse, do they not, do trades move more than expected, less than expected, it's definitely something that you won't want to miss. So jump in there next week. As always, if you guys have enjoyed this podcast, let us know. Give us a rating and review on iTunes. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. And as always, got at least one thing out of it that you can apply right now to help you consistently play smarter, more profitable trades. Until next time, happy trading.